John Newton, uh, the guy who wrote that famous hymn, Amazing Grace, he also wrote a poem called The Kite. It's a story about a kite who somehow gained consciousness. And the story goes something like this. Once upon a time, there was a kite who loved flying. He loves soaring above the ground, you know, like an eagle, the wind, the, the, the breeze. It's just a kite that loved being a kite. Well, one day, as he was soaring in the sky, he had this thought. He thought, you know what? Maybe I could fly higher. And so he tried. He tried to go higher, but nothing happened. That was weird. He was puzzled. So the kite started looking around. And when he looked around, he saw something he never seen before. He saw a string. And the string wasn't just a string. The string was pulling down on him. The string was dragging him down. And from that day forward, every time he was in the sky, the kite noticed that there's this string pulling him down. And so the kite became disgruntled. The kite became an unhappy kite. Well, one day, the kite said, I've had enough. So he decided he's going to bring up with him a scissor. Now, I know, I know, okay, you, you, yeah, you guys are thinking, okay, there's no way a kite can bring a scissor into the sky with him. I know, I know, but a kite can't think or talk either, okay? So just suspend this belief, all right? All right, so kite brought up with him a scissor. And as he's up there soaring and he's feeling the pull of the string, he's like, you know what? This is it. I'm going to be free. And so he cut the string. There's that moment. There's that moment, the wind taking him higher and higher, higher than he's ever flown before. And, and that moment of ecstasy, of joy, of adrenaline rush. He's like, yes, I am. I am free. Right before he tumbled and crashed into the ground. Now, Newton wrote this poem in the 19th century, so of course there's a moral to the story. According to Newton, the problem with the kite is that it was, he was prideful. He wanted to fly too high. Now I, I know, now, I know Newton wrote this poem, and it's his poem and all that, but I kind of disagree. I, I don't think the problem with the kite was that, that it was pride. No, I think the problem with the kite is that it didn't learn aerodynamics. You see, for a kite to fly, it needs to navigate the wind. The wind that's coming is called drag. And for the kite to fly, it needs a force going forward against the drag called a thrust. And when you have thrust meeting the drag, it creates a lift. Well, there's nothing in the kite that produces thrust. Instead, the string provides the thrust. No string, no thrust, no thrust, no lift. The kite gets blown away by the wind and crashes into the ground. The kite didn't know that. The kite didn't know. And then, so the, the kite mistakenly thought that the string was holding him back. But instead, in actuality, the string allowed him to soar. Today, I want to begin with a very simple observation. I believe that we, as 21st century Americans, we are kites that do not understand aerodynamics. Before I keep going, let me introduce myself. My name is Charles. I'm one of the pastors on the teaching team. I want to greet all of you joining us right now, whether you're in Dane County or around Wisconsin, around the country or around the world. Uh, to the Chinese speakers jumping in, to everyone, welcome to Blackhawk Church. We're so glad you're here. Now, today, we are finishing up this series called I Am, in which we're looking at the seven I Am statements that Jesus makes in the Gospel of John. And today we're finishing off with I Am the Gate. So if you have your Bibles, please turn to John chapter 10. I turn to John chapter 10. Now in this chapter, Jesus makes, actually makes two I Am statements. He says, I am the gate. He also says, I am the good shepherd. 
Both of these statements share this underlying metaphor, which is we are sheep and God is shepherd. Now, the moment I start talking about we're being sheep and God being shepherd, some of you, there's kind of this expectation for a certain kind of a talk, you know, about how we follow Jesus and he's our shepherd, we trust him, all that kind of stuff. Well, that's not what's going on in chapter 10. Chapter 10 is actually about danger, about threat, and the need for security for the sheep. Let's go to verses one through five. Very truly, I tell you, Pharisees, anyone who does not enter the sheep pen by the gate, but climbs in by some other way, is a thief and a robber. The one who enters by the gate is the shepherd of the sheep. The gatekeeper opens the gate for him, and the sheep listen to his voice. He calls his own sheep by name and leads them out. When he has brought out all his own, he goes on ahead of them, and his sheep follow him because they know his voice. But they will never follow a stranger. In fact, they will run away from him because they do not recognize a stranger's voice. You see what this passage is about, right? There is threat, and then there is the need for security. In fact, we can see it if we go back to verse 1. Right? First one begins with, hey, there's definitely threats here. There is a thief and there is a robber. Now, in the first century, how do you protect sheep? Well, there's two general security mechanisms. One, of course, is a gate. Right? And already we can tell this gate has a way of keeping out the thief and the robber. And of course, the gate isn't there by itself. If you go to verse 3, you see that there's a gatekeeper as well. Right? The gatekeeper and the gate works together as the first security mechanism for the sheep. What's the second one? Well, the second one is the sheep themselves. You see, the sheep actually listen to the voice of, of the shepherd. He actually, he, he's actually calling the sheep by name. Each of the sheep has like, I have a name. You know, I actually know my name. And they know his voice. They know the shepherd's voice. Right? So the sheep... And the shepherd, they form the second part of the security mechanism. And so Jesus says, I am the good shepherd. I am the gate. He says, I am both part of the security mechanism for the sheep. And so last week we talked about, I am the good shepherd. And we talked about how Jesus fights and dies for us. And that we as sheep, we actually have a responsibility to learn to recognize the voice of Jesus. And that means spending time with him through prayer and through reading the Bible. So that was last week. Today, we're going to start with, I am the gate. And that begins in verse 7. Therefore, Jesus said again, very truly, I tell you, I am the gate for the sheep. All who have come before me are thieves and robbers, but the sheep have not listened to them. What does a gate do? Well, obviously not a gate standing by itself because that doesn't do anything. No, no, no. A gate is obviously part of a walled enclosure. So what does a gate as a part of a walled enclosure do? Well, it has this fundamental function. That is, it separates things, right? The gate lets some things in and keeps some things out. Well, what does it keep out? Well, danger, of course, predators, thieves, robbers, right? I mean, we all live in houses that have doors and they have locks on them. And at night when we go to sleep, you know, most of us, people who come from California, we definitely lock the door because there's dangers outside and we want to keep them out. But the gate doesn't just keep out danger, the gate also separates between those that belong and those that don't. Next verse, I am the gate. Whoever enters through me will be saved. 
They will come in and go out and find pasture. The thief comes only to steal and kill and destroy. I have come that they may have life and have it to the full. The gate separates the sheep. The sheep that come in, they're safe, they're protected. The sheep that go out of the gate, they're not part of the gate, they're not part part of this flock, they're not safe, they're not protected. Jesus says, I am the gate. What does that mean? Well, right there in the text, it means two things. One, Jesus keeps out the danger, right? He decides what is good and what is safe for the people of God, and he keeps out what is dangerous and what is not safe and not good for the people of God. And second, Jesus establishes the limit of the people of God. People who are in him are saved. People who are not in him are not saved. Jesus performs this central dividing function. He is the gate. He is the walt. He is the limit. He is the boundary. How are you guys doing with that? I think for many of us, this is a very difficult concept. I am the gate is actually a difficult saying of Jesus. Basically, Jesus says, hey, you know what? Jesus says, I decide. I decide what's dangerous for you guys. I'm going to keep that out. And what comes in? Oh, by the way, I decide who's in and who's out. And and many of us were like, whoa, 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 Jesus, hey, you know what? I think we can decide for ourselves what's dangerous and what's not. We can make that decision. And also, you know, this whole idea, our whole culture says boundary is bad. We don't believe in boundaries. We believe in freedom. And what is freedom? No limit. Restrictions are bad. Yet Jesus goes exactly the the other way. He says, I'm the gate. I'm the wall. I'm the boundary. And so there is a clash, right? There is this foundational clash between what the Bible teaches and what our culture teaches. And this clash revolves around our identity, around who we are. Because at heart, we do not believe we're sheep. A couple weeks ago, I went to uh, Kim and Greg Hardick's farm and I hung out with their sheep. Now, I want you to look at these sheep. Just look at them, right? They look like the ultimate prey. They look like they've been designed to be eaten. They are slow. They have these big, fat, round bodies. They have these skinny little legs and tiny little hooves. It looks like you just kind of push them. They just fall over. And actually, Kim tells me that that actually happens, that when they run, they'll trip over things, and they will fall, and they will actually roll. And when they get their heads stuck in a fence, they can't get out. They're stuck in it. All they do is That's all they do. Not only is it just the physical part, they also don't have the wit for survival. When they sense danger, what they do is they just kind of stare at the danger, they stand there and they bleat. When I pick them up, (laughs) the moment I pick them up, they stop struggling. They just give up. It's a wonder how they ever survive in the wild without us to protect them. Sheep are weak, sheep are vulnerable, sheep are kind of sad. And that is why in our culture, when somebody calls you a sheep, they're not paying you a compliment. Now here in church, you know, we, we say things like, hey, we're sheep. God is a shepherd. This might be the only place where we can call people sheep and people don't get offended. Outside of church, when people call you sheep, they're insulting you. Think about it. We have the lions, the bears, the eagles. Is there a single football team in America called the Lambs? You know, hey, go Lambs, go. And when we start touchdown, we all go back. No, 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 absolutely not. We as a society do not believe we're sheep. We do not believe we're weak. We do not believe we're vulnerable. We don't need a gate. We don't need a wall. We don't need people to protect us. But that's not how it was in the first century. 
When Jesus said, I am the gate to the first century Jews, he's not talking to people who feel invincible. They know they are not in control. In the first century, they didn't have modern medicine, so plague swept through the cities of the Roman Empire on a regular basis, like clockwork. People died by the thousands. People lived off the land back then. And they didn't have like, you know, irrigation dams and, and ability to dig into the underground aquifers. So they lived off the weather. And a couple of weeks without rain, there goes your crop for the harvest. And your family's gonna starve. They lived under a capricious political system. Always wars and rumors of revolution and the marching armies that destroy without mercy, without discernment. And finally, they believe themselves living in a fully populated spiritual realm. That means they believe that humans are not the top. We're, we're not a major power in the universe. Rather, they're all kinds of spiritual beings who are vastly superior, vastly more powerful than we are, and we live in subject to their will. And so people in the first century that Jesus are talking to, they knew they were sheep and they welcomed the idea of somebody coming along to say, I am the gate. I will protect you from spiritual predators and human predators. Not so for us. Today, we embrace a cultural myth of invulnerability. Our modern medicine allows us to feel pretty protected from most diseases. Our modern technology gives us stable food supply. And we have a political system that's kept us safe and stable for a long time now. And more importantly, we have emptied out the spiritual realm. There's nobody above us. We humans think that we're at the top as a species. But all of that's a myth. All of that's just a blip in history. Already forces, powerful forces are at work to undermine this mythology. Diseases that we cannot control. Climate change that threaten our food supply. And I don't care whose side, which side you voted for, we all have reasons to think that our political system is not as stable as we like. And so there is this underlying clash between the Bible and our culture. The Bible says we are sheep, that we humans, we are weak, we are vulnerable. We are prey to spiritual predators and human predators. And what we need is a gate to protect us, to keep out what is dangerous. In contrast, our culture says, we are not sheep. We are strong. We are powerful. We can do whatever we want. There's nobody above us. We're at the top of the heap. We are the predators. And so you can take your gate and shove it. Now, to be a Christ follower means embracing we are sheep. Now, I got to tell you, I really didn't like this growing up. I really did not like this. My, my parents, my family actually immigrated to America when I was about 10. And, and because, you know, they didn't speak much English when they got here, and they were too old to really learn it. So within a few years, they were relying on us kids, relying on us to handle everything dealing with the outside world. So think about it. I'm like a 13-year-old kid trying to navigate a foreign culture for myself, and for my family with no one to go to for help. So I, I learned a quick lesson, and that is this. I need to be hyper-competent at everything. 
And so I embrace this myth of self-sufficiency, that I can take care of anything, that I don't need other people, and I never ask for help. And that made going to church really, really awkward. Because going to church is like, people are always talking about, oh, you know, Jesus, I'm so broken. I need help. Help me, Jesus. And I'm like, what is wrong with you all? Just snap out of it. Buck up. Now, I think some of you are tracking with me right now. Some of you are tracking with me. I think especially those of you who are men, right? And maybe you didn't go through an immigrant experience, but you know, we're in a culture that defines us as being strong, as not needing help. So following Jesus, we can do that. But this whole thing about being sheep, being weak, being vulnerable, needing Jesus' help to take care of us, that just feels weird. That feels awkward. That feels off-putting. So look, I'm not saying we should pretend to be vulnerable. It's when we don't feel it. In fact, I don't want you to feel vulnerable at all. I want you to know that we are. Because we are vulnerable. We don't want to talk about it. We don't want to think about it. But when we are honest with ourselves, we know. We know. When you hit a certain age, you know your body's breaking down. And you can't stop it. Right, we, can, we can pretend we're in control by doing dieting and exercising, but no, it's a pretense. We can work really hard to provide for our families, to protect our families, but you know the vagaries of the economic forces can wipe out the way you make a living, just like that. And this year more than ever, we come to realize that this sense of control that we have, it's a myth. It's just a myth. Now, I know, maybe some of you are thinking right now, okay, Charles, I can agree with you that that we humans, we need help and we are vulnerable. But is really boundaries the solution? Is a whole bunch of rules the solution? I mean, is life really about living inside a cage with a bunch of stupid religious rules, keeping track of who's in and who's out? Look, I get it. I grew up in a church that had a lot of stupid religious rules. It was no smoking, no dancing, no listening to rock and roll. I know that sounds like a setup for Footloose, and I'm not Kevin Bacon. Uh, But I remember what it was like. There was just a bunch of people who were holier than thou because they followed the rules, and they're always keeping tabs on me and asking why I wasn't following the rules. And that was a lousy way to live, and I got out of there as fast as I could. So what I'm about to say is critical for understanding this passage. Jesus says, I am the gate as a response to the holier-than-thou types fixated on stupid religious rules. Seriously, go in your Bible and look at chapter 9. The chapter 9 is a story about Pharisees who are fixated on the rules about Sabbath, about resting. And Jesus gets mad. And he says, I am the gate. I am the wall. I am the limit. I am the constraint, not those stupid religious rules. Okay, what's the difference? Jesus says, I am the gate. And I have come that they may have life and have it to the full. Jesus says, I am the gate that you can have life to the full. Did you catch that? It is the gate that gives us life. Now, this is a really famous passage. People quote it all the time. But I don't know if you you notice, most people, when they quote, they just quote this part right here. 
they don't quote it in context. Why? Because it's a weird idea. I mean, how does a gate give life? How does a wall give life? How does constraint, how does limit produce life? Jesus is getting us something profound. Years ago, I was talking to this, to this young man, he was in his late, late 20s. And, and he said, Charles, I have questions about my faith. I don't like Christianity. I think there are too many rules. I think life is about freedom. So I said, oh, what do you mean by freedom? He said, I can do whatever I want without restrictions. So I said, okay, do you play a sport? He said, yeah, tennis. So I asked him, would you enjoy tennis more if there are no nets and there's no lines on the ground? He stopped talking. I asked, do you play basketball? He nodded. I asked, would, it, would basketball be better if there are no such things as fouls and people can do whatever they want? He didn't say anything, so I kept pushing. I said, are you married? And he said, yes. And I asked him, would your marriage be better if you and your spouse can do whatever you want, whenever you want, with whomever you want? He said, I need to think about this. You see, our, our culture has been trying to sell us on this idea that freedom is the highest good. That's all about my choice. And all around us, what we see is the wreckage produced by this mythology. Broken family, broken marriages, broken relationships, broken society, broken lives. All because we insist on seeing freedom as the highest good. The kite cut the string because it didn't understand aerodynamics. It didn't understand that the kite didn't have the ability in itself to provide thrust. And that it needed the string. The string provides the thrust. The string provides stability. The wind is too strong. And so the kite can't control the wind. It can't control itself. So without the string, it crashes. We are kites that do not understand aerodynamics. The great tragedy of the story of the Bible is that we, we are created to soar. We're created to rule the earth alongside God as his vice regents. But we wanted to climb higher. We wanted to soar without the strings, without the constraints imposed on us by God. And what we do not see is that there are powerful spiritual forces that can easily overwhelm us from without. And these inner drives and desires that undermine us from within. And we don't realize that the string, that God is not limiting us. He enabled us to fly. And so in the Garden of Eden, Adam and Eve cut the string. And we have been crashing ever since. And so Jesus comes and he says, I am the gate, I am the wall, I am the boundary, I am the limit, I am the constraint so that you can have life and have it to the full. Now, what does all that look like? And there are many ways to answer that question. What I want to do is I want, to, I want us to go back to this whole series, to the whole seven I am statements. And I want us to look at them as constraints, as the strings that tie us, that tie our souls to God. I want to see how they can help us soar, help us produce life. Now, a couple things to clear up. First of all, 
what I'm going to go through, these are not what is required for salvation. Okay, it's not about being saved. If you place your faith in Jesus Christ, you are saved. You are his children. You are part of the kingdom of God. I'm talking about something else. I'm talking about recovering the strings, the constraints that bind our souls to God. I'm talking about the constraints that produce life. And this is actually hard work. This is soul surgery. So what I want you to keep in mind as I'm talking about through these seven statements is that you should be thinking, okay, which one of these I think I know how to do? I think I've incorporated. Which one of these, oh, these are really hard. I have no idea how to do them, okay? Now, I know as I'm going through this, some of you are gonna react by feeling guilty. Please don't. That's a complete waste of time, all right? Be honest and open about where you are. That's how we grow. We start by assessing where we are. So let me get started from the beginning, all right? We begin not with one of the I am statements, but with the phrase I am in the series. Jesus uses this phrase to claim to be Yahweh, the creator God of the universe. The, the, the name Yahweh means I am who I am. And I am more than sufficient for any situation. And this phrase right here lays out the first constraints, the first limit, which is people who follow Jesus, we trust him as the one true God. This is the foundation for everything else that's coming up. Next one. I am the light of the world. Jesus brings light into the world, which means people who follow him, we walk in the light. Now, let me make this very, very clear. Walking in the light does not mean living a perfect life, not even close. Rather, it means we have the light so we can see ourselves clearly. We see our brokenness. We see the places we fall short. We do not pretend to be better than who we are. And we do not hide. We do not hide our brokenness. We do not hide our struggles. There is immense freedom in being open about who we are to God through confession and to other people, the people that we trust in our lives. Whereas there's shame and fear in hiding. Do you hide? Are there things in your lives that you do not want to see the light of day, that you would not want your closest friend to know about? This is a tough one for some of us. I'm the bread of life. Jesus says he satisfies our deepest longings, which means we reserve that role for him. This could be a hard one for a lot of us because you know, many of us, we have good things in our lives. We have careers and pursuits. We have loved ones. We, we, we have organizations that, that, that we're passionate about, that, that we're passionate about their mission. We're big sports fans. We eat and drink Badgers or the Packers or even heaven forbid the Cubs. All of these are good things maybe except the cups part. All of these are good things, but this constraint tells us that we need to keep them at a certain distance and we reserve the most high, the most central, most intimate place in our hearts for Jesus. This could be a tough one for many of us. I am the true vine. Jesus begins this new spiritual community on earth the new people of God. And as Christ followers, we commit ourselves to joining this community, the church, and we seek to find identity and belonging in this community. Now, this can be really, really hard because frankly, we find identity and, and, and belonging among people that we agree with, that people that, that are like us. But the community of Jesus are full of different kinds of people. And so it can be really hard to find identity and belonging here. I, th I think sometimes following Jesus, the hardest part is not Jesus, it's actually other people in the church. So this is challenging. Next. 
I am the resurrection. Jesus says, I can wake up a dead person just by calling his name. And people who follow him, Jesus says to you, I will resurrect you after you die and you will wake up and live eternally. So people who follow him, we live as people who know we will be resurrected. We live as people who, who realize that this existence is a blip in the course of eternity and that we, so we live without fear of death. How are you doing with that one? Oh, this is a hard one. I'm the truth. <laughs> Look, we live in a culture that doesn't believe in absolute truth. When we go to college, I mean, in humanities classes, the first thing they tell us is there's no such thing as absolute truth. It's all relative. It's all different the perspective you take. And then Jesus comes along and says, I am the truth. I bring clarity, spiritual clarity, moral clarity. And we're like, ah. Christ followers were called to embrace Jesus and his clarity, his moral clarity, his spiritual clarity. And we're to reject the idea that there's no absolute truth. Now, this can be really challenging. And I want to say something right now about this one, because I know some of you are thinking, wait a minute, wait a minute. Is, does that mean it's not possible to follow Jesus and have questions and have doubts and, and want to push back against what Jesus says? Oh, I'm telling you, it's not only possible, it's literally what everybody does. When you read through Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, what you see are people who literally follow Jesus, his actual disciples. They follow him for three years and they have all kinds of questions, all kinds of doubts, all kinds of pushback against Jesus. I think we have this wrong notion, okay? We somehow think that we need to believe everything Jesus says before we can follow him, when in reality, it's exactly the reverse. We start following Jesus and then we start figuring out what Jesus is saying and figure out and understand and believe. So it is absolutely possible to say, hey, Jesus, I want to follow you. By the way, here's some things you said I don't agree with. I think they're wrong, but please help me. I want to understand. This can be a hard one for many of us. And then finally, I'm the good shepherd. I am the gate. We embrace the underlying metaphor that we are sheep. We are weak. We are vulnerable. Even when we feel strong because the culture tells us that. And we also reject the idea that freedom is the highest good. We, we, instead, we embrace the constraint that gives life, that Jesus is the string that ties us to the heart of God. Okay, those are the seven. How'd you guys do? Which ones did you find easy? Like, I've, I've incorporated that. Which ones you're like, man, that's, that sounds really hard. That's gonna be a lot of work. I want you to be really open about that and talk about it with people you're, you're, you know, you're watching this with or with your friends, with family, or in life groups, please talk about this. Now, before I close, I, I just wanna, I wanna um, offer one more clarification. And that is this. I hope that based on everything I talked about so far, that you understand what I mean by life lived to the full, that it's not referring to success or wealth or fame or status or some kind of pursuit of unique experiences. No, we're not talking about that at all. And the things we talked about, these constraints, they wouldn't produce those things anyway. No, these constraints instead would produce a life that is lived in honesty that is full of energy and purpose and boldness and missional, that is lived with integrity and humility. It is a life thoroughly integrated with the community of the people of God 
and such that everybody who comes in contact with this person, they would receive health and wholeness. All of this is because this person, this person's soul is now connected, constrained by Jesus, who is the true source of life. Let me pray for us. Father, we are grateful. We're grateful because you know us, you see us clearly and we are weak and we are vulnerable and we need help. And we confess to you so often, we don't think that way, we don't feel that way. Our culture has got us trained to think that we're strong and we're powerful, so we resist. We resist paying attention to you as our boundary. We wanna set those things for ourselves. We wanna decide those things for ourselves. We want freedom. So Father, we confess that and we confess that our heart, it's gonna take some time to change. We follow you, you gave us salvation, we're grateful. And now what we want is that surgery in our soul to reattach these constraints to us so that we can truly soar. So help us, Father, help us. We confess to you our brokenness. We embrace you as our gate, as our constraint that allows us to live life to the full. It is in Jesus' name we pray, amen.